dating and relationships are something I think about frequently. What about you, Millhouse? Yeah, I think about it pretty often. It's tough to date. Yeah. It's tough to be single, find a right partner, right match. For me, it, as someone who's approaching 30, what I'm looking for has changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The kind of energy that I want in my life has changed. When I was younger, I had a bunch of chaotic relationships, a lot of back and forth. You know, I had a very insecure attachment style that was anxious. You know, I had that anxious attachment style. And then as I got older, I went the opposite and became avoidant. Avoidant of relationships, intimacy, um, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And it's something I've always really struggled with is relating to women in a human way. Mm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure in the world in general to date. Like, you know, there's like a lot of social pressure, like from like apps and stuff and in general. But I, I get what you're saying, though. Uh, I'd say that my energy towards dating has kind of been probably different than yours, you know. Well, we're in different spots in life now. Mm hmm. When I was your age, I was just trying to basically hook up with any girl that would want to hook up with me Mm -hmm. and spend time with me. Um, I was looking to feel good about myself through someone else because I didn't have the self-esteem to begin with to form an honest and intimate bond with a girl that would be my girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely see that. I feel like I've, I've, I'm kind of like the opposite. I've always had like long-term relationships. I've never really had short, like little relationships. I've either had no relationship or long-term relationships. I think that's probably how it is for most guys your age. Yeah. I think that's completely normal. For me, I think because I didn't really have any girlfriends in high school, I always had something to prove to myself. Mm-hmm that I was worth it, I was worth love because my mom never loved me, you know, in a, in a true way. Yeah. And I never felt secure, I never felt that connection with anyone. Mm-hmm. And a great way to figure out what bullshit you have is being in a relationship with someone. I mean, I've had girlfriends kind of, but never really. I was always just like, I wanna be single. It, and I really felt that way because after my, my early 20s, I was a mess in a train wreck and I kept going for girls that they would hang out with me for a little while, but I was just the kind of guy that they would have fun with. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the kind of guy you would want to bring home to your mom. Yeah. I, I get that, but I get that from like the opposite side of the spectrum. Like, you know, I'm the guy that gets brought home to the mom, yeah. but then dumped. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was the guy that didn't get brought home to mom and then dumped. Mm. And that that fueled a bunch of, a bunch of in, in insecurities in me that I already had that I wasn't worth loving. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's difficult today, especially where I'm not... At, at being 20 and not being in college makes it so much more difficult. It is, yeah. I mean, I I experienced the same thing, but I was also living in a small town, so it was a little bit different in Maine. So there was a bunch of other kids that didn't go to college and didn't do anything, and people would come home for the summers. So it was like I would see girls I went to high school, and we would just kind of like loosely date, have a fling, whatever. And 
when I moved out to Colorado, though, I didn't have any relationships, no, no prospects whatsoever. Um, and then I'll, I'll rewind it for a second. So I've talked about this before. Um, I moved down to Florida for six months, played in the band with Kurt, moved back to Maine, and started smoking weed, started drinking, started getting laid, figured out how to do it. And once I figured out how to do it, I was like, what's the point of having a girlfriend? You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, but that was a lie that I told myself because I didn't know how to form an intimate connection. I didn't know how to compromise with someone. Because so much of dating and relationships, you have to compromise. Mm-hmm. You have to find a middle ground for everyone to walk away happy to create a win-win situation. And I didn't know how to do that. My method was come out guns and blazing. We're going to get into a, a gunfight and see who comes out on the other end. Yeah. And turns out women don't really like that. Yeah. They hate that. I mean, it can be exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, 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 for me at least, I've always kind of tried to compromise and stuff, but it's usually ended up like, especially like, cause you know, I've had like a lot of long distance ones. It's always been like my way or you can leave type yeah. thing, which isn't good. You know, uh, that you feel that you've been that way or the girl you've been with has been that way. Them. Yeah. You know, they've always kind of been like that. And, uh, so like what ends up happening is we end up in this toxic battle back and forth between who's right and who's wrong when neither of us are right. You know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Like we end up in this t- and, and we always got drawn back to each other because of how bad we were for each other. Well, we attract what we, uh, what we fear the most, what we don't like. Yeah. Personality wise, physically, the person might've been, you know, I think that's the, the other thing when you're young too, you set your sights on someone that you think is going to be perfect for you. Maybe they like the right type of music. Maybe they like the right, they have the right kind of job or they have the right kind of personality. Now I, I think for myself, I don't really care how much I have in common with a girl on in terms of like do we like the same things mm-hmm. it's more of a personality fit now that's the most important thing but that came with age and maturity and dating a bunch of different girls yeah i've never thought about it like that what you just said i've, I've never honestly thought about it like that it's always just been like what did you know what do you like oh we don't like anything you know but uh what, what would you say is like the as far as a personality type is something that you usually look for in people? Well, I mean, really, I'm pretty open to whatever. It's just, it, it really comes down to chemistry. Mm. There has to be that chemistry there. I guess I wouldn't necessarily say personality type, but chemistry. Yeah. There has to be some electricity there and some spark to work with. Because it's like on the dating apps, it's hard as a guy because you are one in 50,000 dudes blowing up their phone. Yeah. It's a miracle if you can ever book a date on a dating app because of all the shit you've had to trudge through. Yeah. It's like crabs in a bucket, dude. Yeah. Crawl into the top, and as soon as you get to the top, there's another crab that pulls you back down. Yeah. Dude, I, I, I lost all hope. I don't use the dating apps. 
it was like it's tough i mean today's guest the reason that we're talking about dating relationships and all that is because today's guest dr wendy wall she came on the show and really gave me a dissertation on dating and relationships in the modern world and the evolutionary i don't know what the right word is the evolutionary i guess pull behind that Mm -hmm. of why we do what we do yeah there's always a reason why we do what we do and basically what she was saying is it could be biological it could be social it could be um any any number of things that influences our dating choices which are really our mating choices because the reason that we're on this planet is to procreate and grow the species that's pretty wild to think about. Yeah. So it's like when you're on a date with someone, biologically, you are driven to try and reproduce with them. Although our conscious brains might say, I don't want kids now, you might want to have sex with them, whatever. But that's the reason that condoms exist and the reason that birth control exists is because we want to have our cake and eat it too. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. I've never thought about dating as far as like, oh, that's the reason that we're drawn to do it. You know, I guess if you think about it like that, like that's, it's weird to think about it like that. Um, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I listened to like what she had to say and everything and it, and it all does make sense. You know, the way she explains it, it, it all makes sense of, of why we do what we do, you know. But it's weird to think that everything that has to do with dating is motivated biologically and and all that. Oh, yeah. You know, that's like we can't control it necessarily. No. I mean, I think to a certain degree you can change, you can grow, you can make decisions. And I've been able to do that just through experience Mm -hmm. of knowing what I want and what I don't want now. Yeah. I'm not there yet. It took me a long time to get there, dude. I'm not I'm not there yet to where I exactly know what I want or really have decision making abilities sometimes. What it takes in order to do that is having a bunch of things you don't want. Mm-hmm. That's what it was for me. And one thing she talked about that I really resonated with, she said, um, what was she talking about? She was basically talking about there's if you stay out of the dating game, there's no way to get better at it. Yeah. And for a long time, for like a year and a half, I just got super in myself and tried to do work. And I'm glad I did that, that self-work to try and do it. But I was out of the dating game for a while. I jumped back right in. It was same as always. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just more figuring out what I don't want. Um, but I have the tendency to go out on dates and uh, just shoot the idea down in my head of why I don't want something. Before I continue to, to try it out yeah. and see if it's something that could potentially fit me. I'm, I'm too quick for dismissal and I'm understanding that with age. I need to stretch my legs out a few times and really get to know a girl before I can make a judgment. Because if it's up to me, I'm just going to say, oh, I need to keep working. Oh, I need to keep working. But that is partially due to having that avoidant attachment style. Yeah. So, so you like, I, I feel like I have a little bit of the same feeling as like, if a girl's talking to me for a long time, I'll start not ghosting her, but 
but I'll like start shutting it down. Well, if it's not, do you mean that if it's not going anywhere or you if, know, if, if it's going somewhere and it's like moving along and, and we're moving into like a relationship mode almost, sometimes I'll just shoot it down before she ever even has the chance. Do you think it's because maybe that girl's a healthy choice for you? Yeah. And I've had to deal with that kind of recently. So like I've, I've figured out, and this is a little bit dark, but the people that treat me the best, I'll walk away from, you know, what does that say about me and you? <laughs> you tell me dog. <laughs> <laughs> Here is Dr. Wendy Walsh. Today we have Dr. Wendy Walsh. Dr. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy to be here. So I saw you on TikTok. I was fascinated by some of the stuff you're saying because it's a little bit taboo. Really? For who? Where are you in the world? Uh, uh, (laughs) That's a great question. I'm in America. So, you know, everything's taboo here now. But I just thought we have the most sexualized media using sexuality to sell people products and yet also the most conservative ideas when it comes to sexual communication. So it's sort of this funny dichotomy we live in. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure why, you know, if you think of uh, some other places in the world like Europe, um, it's much more customary to talk about basic stuff. Now, I should say I'm an evolutionary psychologist. So the whole reason for being on this planet is for reproduction. And so reproduction involves dating, mating and relating. And people think that, oh, times have changed. We have dating apps. We have new rules. Nothing has changed. There are new pathways, but it's the same old story of a giant conflict between the sexes. Of course, now we have a greater understanding of more variety of sexual diversification, but that's about it. I saw this really funny meme on Instagram a few weeks ago that said, remember when we thought lack of information was the cause of stupidity. And then right under it, it said, turns out that's not the problem. No. (laughs) In fact, we've learned that giving people more information sometimes isn't helpful, but what is helpful is understanding their emotional processes, right? Like what is it going underneath as they make decisions? Um, It's much more important. Well, that brings me to my first question. It was something I saw you talking about. How do men and women love differently? How do they love differently? Yeah. Or why do do they choose certain mates? Why do they do certain things? Like biologically speaking. Okay. So this is, there's a whole textbook and many, many textbooks on this. So I'm going to try to synthesize it in a way that uh, you can understand it. Before I give my answer, I want to be very careful to let people know that when we talk in evolutionary psychology terms, we often talk in a kind of heteronormative way in a binary way, but I want people to understand that there is so much diversity in the genders and diversity in biological sex. So I don't want people to feel that I'm putting them in one box or another, but for our simplicity sake, you asked me about two specific sexes. I will say this, that men fall in love faster than women. There's lots of research to support that. Uh, men also subscribe to more of this rom-com or not no, romantic um, movie uh, where there's this one person and love will just hit you. Now, men do not say the words, I love you first, but they feel it. Now, women, on the other hand, tend to be more assessing 
Because let's think about it. Sex is a much higher risk hobby for women than it is for men. And so because of women's unique biology, women are more likely to contract an STI. They're more likely to fall in love because their bodies emit so much oxytocin during sex. And they're more likely to catch an 18-year case of parenthood. And so as a result, women are supposed to be more choosy. Now, we're at a time where women have lots of ways to reduce the risks, right? Women have birth control. They have um, condoms to help protect against STIs and help protect against pregnancy. Um, But their heart is still on the line, sometimes more than men. Now, men, on the other hand, don't fall in love through sex. They both get a hit of oxytocin during sex, which is the cuddle hormone, the bonding hormone. But women get more of it. And, and it, it increases feelings of love for women. Men, on the other hand, it gets blunted by the effect of testosterone. So men can have sex with the same woman for three months straight and not like her one bit more than he did before. Whereas women, if they continue to have sex with the same guy, will start to report feelings of love. So that causes one of the big conflicts between the sexes. I'd say so, yeah. And especially now, too, there's all of these... Uh dating apps. And I feel like that's really changed the game or maybe just highlighted what was already kind of there. What are are your thoughts on dating apps now, as far as like finding a mate and hookup culture and all of that? Um, Okay. So dating apps, the only thing that's the difference between a dating app in a nightclub is that um, you're, it's a bigger nightclub, much bigger. So in our anthropological past, human beings, and this is what our DNA is wired for, human beings during their entire lifespan probably never set eyes on more than about 150 people. And half of those people they were related to. So we didn't have a lot of mate choice. And what dating apps do is give you thousands and thousands of potential mates. Now, the human brain suffers from something called a paradox of choice, meaning that the more choice somebody has, the less likely we are to make a choice. And when we do make a choice, we don't value that choice as much because we're always thinking about the bigger, better deal that could, could have gotten away, right? Think about the last time you grabbed your remote control, you didn't know what you were going to watch, and you just turned on Netflix and started scanning, right? I mean, I've had nights where I just threw down the remote and said, I give up. Right. And so the same, or I get on a show and I'm like, mm, should I really be watching the show? Maybe I should get another show. This is not that great. Right. That's what dating apps do to the human brain. So the only way they biohack your brain. And so the only way to survive the dating apps is to only focus on one or two matches at once and just evaluate one, two, move on, eliminate one, one, two, not have a box filled with 10 matches. Yeah, it seems that uh, choice and having unlimited options is is more of a hindrance than it is opportunity. It is because you know what love is, Taylor. Love is a decision. Lust is a cocktail of neurohormones that make you get together and have great sex. But once those hormones die down, then your brain does a cost benefit analysis. You look at this person and go, "Oh, they're actually human. I overestimated their value." wait, I feel good when I'm with them. They add this to my life. And as a result, you make a decision to love. Love is a verb. It's an action word. 
Interesting. Yeah. Because if you're in a long-term relationship with someone, I mean, we all have flaws, we all have character defects. And as you start to get to intimately know someone, you start seeing those things more. And then, you know, maybe you have great sex, whatever, whatever you enjoy hanging out, but that starts to come to the forefront and you start to get annoyed or any number of things. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's actually the progress of love, right? It begins where all genders over-report the amazing character and looks of their lover. And then after a while, you know, that you've heard the term love is blind or love is a look through rose colored glasses, right? Yeah. And yeah. then your brain just gets accustomed to all those exciting neurohormones and it goes, oh, wait, this is a real person. And that's when you make the decision to love. Unfortunately, too many young people think, well, I've fallen out of love at that point. When actually you're in the most important transition, which is going into mature companionate love with a sexual component. But um, some people think, oh, because the lust has gone down, somehow I'm not in love, which is just, it's stages. Interesting. Yeah. So that stage in the game is really love is dedication. You're, you're choosing to actively keep the spark alive because you have to at a certain point, you have to interject it back into the relationship. Because if you're not trying, it dies. But remember, both people are doing it. So you're getting a lot back too, right? If you both made a decision to love each other and put the relationship first, listen, two brains are better than one in accomplishing everything in life. And what we know about long... Relationships are super good for our health, all right? Um, What we know about long-term committed relationships, whether you're married or not, is that people live longer they have better mental health, they have better physical health, and they accumulate more wealth because it's way more expensive to maintain two households or pay divorce attorneys and alimony and everything else, right? So staying together is really beneficial for survival. And if both partners do that and add into it, there's lots of gifts. So when I hear the word dedication, I'm like, oh, that sounds like sacrifice, but there are a lot of benefits too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, The other thing I kind of been thinking about a little bit lately is how childhood, either a good childhood or a bad childhood can shape your relationship preferences. Is there any science behind that? There's a ton of science. Probably the most studied psychological theory is called attachment theory, which is the area I specialize in. And attachment theory says this, your brain, when it comes into the world, is primed to be um, nudged and prodded by the environment. When you're a baby and a toddler, the environment are your primary caregivers. So we all come into the world with a predisposition for a certain kind of attachment style. And then depending how our parents treated us, we create a kind of blueprint for love, a model for love. Now, and then we go out into our adult romantic lives and we find somebody that will match our model of love. Now, this is all well and good if you had really consistent parents, if you had loving, caring parents who didn't leave you crying in a crib for hours with a wet diaper or hungry. Um, Remember, babies will love no matter what, right? Because that's their survival mechanism. But if you had a parent who, because of the pressures on them, was unable to meet the needs of the baby or toddler, if love is filled with loss, neglect, criticism, abuse, then you will go out in your adult life and you will find partners who will behave in that way because that is normal to you. 
that is familiar to you. And so I hope your next question is, well, can you change your attachment style? And the answer is yes, absolutely. There are all kinds of relationships. Learning to have healthy, secure attachments is the way you change your attachment style. Well, how does somebody go about changing their attachment style? What do they have to do? Well, first of all, they have to recognize it, you know, so you, you could be saying, well, I, I got, I'll hear people say, I have a bad picker, right? That's a great example of somebody with an insecure attachment style. They pick partners who bring them pain instead of security, joy, love, and peace. Um, so recognize it is the first thing. And the next thing is when it comes along. So you'll hear people say, oh, I don't know what it is. Like I pick completely different people, but then I always end up in the same place. I always say you're all, you're dating the same person over and over and over. They drive a different car. They wear a different shirt. Uh, they're a different age, but they're making you feel the same way. So the next stage is to just be very vigilant that when those red flags come up very early in a relationship to be strong enough to walk away. And often it's best to do that under the care of a therapist who can go, mm, you know what, on that date, she acted a little nutty. You sure you want to go out with her again? Right. And so you can have the observing eye of a healthy person to help you make those choices. Um, and then finally, you will get attracted to something that doesn't bring you pain, but may feel uncomfortable at the beginning. For instance, I've heard people say, you know, I had to learn to tolerate kindness. That was new to me. Um, so my favorite metaphor for personal growth, especially when it comes to romantic growth, is imagine that you're walking down the street and you don't see a hole and you fall in it. That hole is your poor attachment style, right? Stage two is you're walking down the street, you now see the hole and you fall in it right? Stage three is you're walking down the street, you see that hole, and you very carefully put your mind to this problem and walk around the hole. And stage four is you take a different street, right? And so eventually, a person can move to somebody who um, does bring them peace or joy. Now, keep in mind, this is the crazy thing about psychology. We have, we're able to actually do sly little things to make the person behave in a way that feels familiar to us. So there are people with insecure attachment styles. They'll pick somebody who has a very secure attachment style and they'll be like, wow, you know, he's great. He's solid. He's able to talk about his feelings. He mirrors back my feelings. He has good communication. This is amazing. But after a while, the person's like, this doesn't feel exciting to me, like all that pain I felt with all those bad boys. So what will happen is there'll be what we call anxious ambivalent. It's like, I long to be close, but when you're actually there and attentive to me, I'm going to create an explosion and blow things up because I need to push you away. So this is how complicated attachment style is, is that people can actually put little bombs in the minds of their partners because they're trying to get them to behave like their abusive parent. Interesting. Well, that, that brings me to another question. What kind of attachment styles are there? So the truth is it's a very long continuum, but just for the purpose of explanation, I'm going to give you three simple categories. Okay. One is the person who is avoidant. Now that doesn't mean they're avoidant of emotional intimacy. 
It doesn't mean they don't have relationships or can't have relationships, but nobody treads near the personal areas of their soul. So they can obtain sex. They can often be player chicks or player guys who are very good at the first few dates. Um, But when it comes to talking about something very emotional, they have all kinds of techniques to emotionally dash away change the subject, not be available, turn on the TV, um, just find ways to get away from the emotional topics. Then at the other end of the scale, we'd have somebody who has more anxiety around attachment. So they're like always in a kind of state of longing, waiting for mommy to come back. And, and so these would be the people who are chronically texting or counting the minutes or hours between the texts. They're vigilantly clock watching. They're, they're vigilantly looking for signs of abandonment. And what's interesting is that the avoidant person and the anxious person are the most common group couple who gets together. Because they actually ignite each other's worst nightmares that they, I'm making quotation marks with my fingers, that they need. And so it can be this long journey of pain where one is chasing and one is running away. But about 40% of the population have something that psychologists call a secure attachment style. And there's no, the biggest difference, you know, people with a secure attachment style still get angry, still feel sad but they can tolerate the rainbow of feelings that come up in humans. And the biggest difference between somebody with a secure attachment style and somebody with an insecure attachment style is their backbone. Even at the worst of times, they never lose love for themselves and they know that they're going to be okay. They had parents who said, you can do this. I'm so proud of you. Oh, you made a mistake. You need to go and say you're sorry. And so when Stuff gets, a, you know, when the, the rubber hits the pavement in their relationships, they're able to say, we need to talk. We need date night. I, I, I'm feeling like I hurt your feelings. Um, and, and this secure attachment style permeates into every aspect of their life with colleagues, with customers, with their kids. And that's why people with a secure attachment style tend to have higher achievement academically in their careers, higher income, fewer divorces, etc. So it really shapes our personality and our choices for life. Yeah. What's funny to me is that we have such a wide range in humanity. If you look at all over the world, just the wide spectrum of human beings that there are, And it's different everywhere almost because you can get dropped off in like a third world country where your needs maybe weren't met, but you had a loving family or you could be here in America where you were neglected. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are lots of people who are born into extremely wealthy families with all of their physical needs taken care of, but it's their emotional needs that, you know, weren't taken care of. And so at the end of the day, and yeah. There are, uh, you know, social class knows nothing about love. In other words, there are people who live in poverty in the world and here in America who report that they are very happy. They're happy with their families. They're happy with their children. They're not in a constant state of wanting more, 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 more um, because they have this secure attachment. It's mind-blowing to me. I mean, there's this thing that I also have been thinking about is how much of our choices are actually of free will. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Now we're going to have a philosophy lesson. Uh, 
I actually don't think most of our choices are done with free will. And let me start with physiology. So from the beginning of our life, I teach, I'm a professor of health psychology at California State University, Channel Islands. And in the first lecture every semester, I tell my students that their bodies have been one great biology experiment used by capitalism. So from the very beginning of their lives, if their mother didn't breastfeed, they got to taste their first processed food in formula. And for the rest of their lives, they were fed by a food industry who didn't care so much about their nutrition. They cared about making food inexpensively and putting enough addictive qualities in it that you will continue to consume that food. And I tell them that don't worry, because once the food industry is finished with you, the pharmaceutical industry will be happy to take over, right? So for instance, let's use the example of obesity. People think obesity is a behavior problem. You should just stop eating. Well, we know that there's a bio, psycho, social aspect to every piece of human behavior. So biologically, some people have a gene for obesity. Some people, literally their brains never feel full. Some people, then let's talk about psychologically. Some people may have been abused in childhood. In fact, the, the research has shown that obesity rates are 50% correlated with child sexual abuse. It's almost like psychologically, the person says, I'm going to build up a barrier around me so no one will touch me again. And then socially, people who suffer from obesity are the most discriminated group in our culture. So you can say, oh, that person's overweight and they should just stop beating. But it's far more complicated. And the same goes with love. We unconsciously go out in the world and we choose partners who may hurt us. And it is not our fault because, and it wasn't even our parents' fault because they had their own pressures, right? But it has to do with what happened in our early childhood. I believe it is incumbent on all of us to bring our inner life to light, to gain insight into our unconscious processes so that we can have more control over the decisions in our life. Well, how can we do that? Therapy, babe, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> the end all be all, right? Right. I, I mean, I think that, you know, praying it away is not is not any better than meditating. Although there's great, there is actually really great research that religiosity helps people live longer. Um, and it ha partly has to do with the community building, uh, the fact that every religion preaches a good, clean living. Um, and because of the chanting, every religion has chanting, whether you're saying the Hail Mary over and over, or you're sitting on a mountaintop going, um, and we know that this calms our parasympathetic nervous system, our sympathetic nervous system. And so, um, but having said that, in order to learn love, you have to actually be in the game. People will say, well, you know, I took a year off of dating so that I could grow. I'm like, no, no, you avoided, you didn't heal. And so now you're going to step out on the street of a dating app and get hit by a bus. Like the only way to get better at relationships is to have relationships. Relationships are a gymnasium for our minds. We must psychologically tangle with another in order to gain insight into our behaviors and also to have greater compassion for somebody else's behaviors. 
anytime I've been in a long-term relationship or I've been with someone for a period of time, things start coming to the surface. You I, like, at least for me, I start noticing things about myself where I'm like, Hmm, maybe I don't really like that about myself. And it always starts off with like, well, maybe a disagreement, not even an argument, just like, Oh, that made me feel weird. Why does that make me feel weird? Well, what is it in me? The very fact that you're able to stop and ask and go inside yourself and ask what your piece of it is, says that you're a healthy individual, right? People who defend from their own internal processes are just blame everything outside of them. Oh, that person was a jerk. That person did that to me. That person hurt me because the baby child in them was once hurt, right? So the healthy person says, huh, that was interesting. When she said that, I felt that. I wonder does that have to do with this relationship or something else that happened to me in my life? And, and that is the healthy way to negotiate love. I've done a lot of therapy, so. Oh, good. <laughs> good, well, good, good. And I, what, one of the things I just want to say, Taylor, that's so important is since I have, I mean, I've been writing and talking about the science of love for 25 years. I've written three books on relationships. I have a radio show at the most listened to talk radio station in the network, in the nation, uh, KFI AM 640 Los Angeles. Um, I have hosted shows. I'm a former co-host of the Dr. Phil spinoff, the doctors. Um, I will say that since I have gone online in a big way with my TikTok channel and my other social media, I'm surprised and about 50% of my followers are men. And men are yearning to find this information, almost more than women, because women have gotten it their whole life. And every Glamour magazine and Cosmo magazine article, every women's fashion magazine is filled with relationship advice, right? But men go online. They don't buy relationship books. They go online and follow people like me. Why do you think that is? Um, I think there's stigma. I think there is... Um, a kind of, sometimes I hate the term toxic masculinity, but what I mean is sometimes masculine beliefs can hurt men. And we are at a time of enormous change in gender roles. For the first time in history, we have more women in the American workforce than men. We don't have enough women in boardrooms and in ownership positions, but we're getting there. Secondly, you've seen the feminization of college campuses of the last decade. Women are getting far more education. So I'm always talking to women about the fact that, ladies, your idea of a power man might be a guy who can power a stroller. Like, seriously, get rid of this Cinderella complex and this idea that just because you've achieved all this education and wealth, that you have to find a mate who will have even more resources and more education because there aren't enough mates to go around right now for that. Um, but men are getting super smart, too, because it used to be when gender roles are, were so clearly defined that men's job was to be mostly a provider and protector. And I'll say that that wasn't a good deal for guys either. That putting men in that box was also a high pressure, awful thing. Why do you think men have higher rates of alcohol and tobacco use and higher rates of heart disease, right? Because of the stress and pressure of being put in that heteronormative masculine box, right? 
So now the smart guys, and if you look at some of them on TikTok, I love what I'm seeing. You'll see like the most macho male athletes playing music in their TikTok videos like they're ready to go out on the field for war. And then when they turn, they're holding a little pink fluffy baby and going out for a walk or wearing it, right? It's so cute. And so men are starting to appeal to women by saying, you know, it's all mating strategy, by the way. It used to be, look at my flashy car. Look at my cool condo, ladies. Come on over. Now it's like, I literally received a note from a guy once saying, I think you're hot and you should know that I know how to fold a fitted sheet. And I was like, ooh, that is sexy, right? So men are learning that women need different things now. Dr. Wendy, I think that is the perfect place to end it. Can you tell us where to find you at? Like, how can people find your radio show? How can they find you on social media? Pretty much everywhere. So if you download the iHeartRadio app, you can find the Dr. Wendy Walsh on demand anytime. I do a new show every week. I take calls. If you want to send me things online, questions, I can answer them on air because some people are shy about some of the tender things. Um, I have a TikTok channel with about 350,000 followers. I've got Instagram. Uh, Twitter is an angry place, but I'm there. Um, and uh, so you can follow me anywhere. And the handle everywhere is literally at Dr. Wendy Walsh, at Dr. Wendy Walsh. Awesome. Dr. Wendy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Taylor. Yes, you as well. All right. This podcast is produced to you by Taylor Miller.